Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Today, we have an amazing guest. We are joined by Steve Saracino, founder of Activant Capital, a growth equity fund with more than $500 million in assets under management. Activant is a long-term oriented investment firm that partners with high growth companies transforming the industrial complex. Steve has had a great track record of investing in disruptive tech and places particular emphasis on data-heavy businesses that can act as a source of truth for large industries. He's also an MBA graduate from our very own Wharton School and was an extremely gracious guest with nothing but kindness. And now join me in a fun interview with Steve Saracino. Well, Stephen, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech podcast. Uh, you know, we're extremely excited to have you here. Not only are you a successful venture capitalist covering the fintech scene, but you're also a Wharton alum, which means a lot to us. So thank you for joining us. And can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. My pleasure, Miguel. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I always had an interest in technology and finance. My grandfather was a professor of history at Berkeley and then went to go fight in World War II. And when he came back, the economic landscape looked very different. So he became a stockbroker and taught me how to read the stock charts when I was very young. I was 10, 11 years old. I was pretty fluent in things like, you know, now that are obvious, but PE ratios and what EBITDA was. And like a lot of people in my generation, we got into tech through gaming. So for us, gaming was copying floppy disks and rewriting games and cheating and sharing and and, you know, where those two converged for me was at Robertson Stevens in the late 90s when I was a tech banker. And we were taking many of the large companies that are around today public, many public that didn't make it through the dot-com boom. And it was just an incredible place to understand business models and what works and what doesn't. That actually also Robertson Stevens shut down uh, late in the dot-com cycle, joined a couple other guys, helped start a small investment bank actually took it public, made enough money to pay for my time at Wharton, which was phenomenal two years. And I'm jealous that you've got one more left, even during COVID. This is a great period of time. I spent some time at McKinsey in Hong Kong and then got back into investing. Uh, I helped open up the Palo Alto Office for American Capital. At the time, they managed over $20 billion And we deployed money across venture, buyout, and growth, mostly B2B tech, so a lot of software, some internet as well. Got pulled out of there to go start another business. This is now my third time starting a, an investment business with a guy I knew from McKinsey. It was a smaller fund, raised that. I lasted about two years there before I think they got tired of me. I'm quite opinionated. And that brings us to December of 2009, early 2010. And right after the great financial crisis, not a lot of jobs for people like me. And so, you know, I built three of these businesses for other people. So when did it for myself this time and built something that, you know, with a blank sheet of paper, with the culture, 
environment team that I thought was possible that I didn't see existed across across the investment landscape and also focused mostly on growth. So we, you might call it late stage venture, but these are businesses with product market fit. You know, they've got real revenue and we're coming in and really driving growth, which is the biggest lever in any business. And growth is just a really fun place. And the way I think about growth is it's almost like a long dated option because you can get venture like returns, the 10 and 20 and 30 X's. And you're actually going to, it sounds like interview one of our CEOs later this week that's just done a phenomenal job, Vishaladbetter.com, which falls into that camp. But at the same time, if a business doesn't perform, you can really protect that premium. And that's, you know, that's what I found when I, when I worked at my two previous shops was growth, you get the benefits of both. Now, the hard part about growth is really team building because you need a broad set of skills. You need the venture skill set. So a lot of, you know, people that have been entrepreneurs empathize with the entrepreneur that understand how to build businesses, but you also need the buyout skill set. And, you know, merging that in every person is difficult, but we try to do is merge that across the team. So we're in our third fund now. A lot of our portfolio is in fintech. And as we, as we chatted earlier, even the ones that aren't, you know, in the long term, most B2B tech companies become payment companies anyway. So they've got, we've got some sort of payment or fintech strategy across most of our portfolio. Great. Great. No, that's, that's very good, Steve. So tell us a little bit more about Active and tell us how have you seen the evolution of fintech over you know, the last seven years from your point of view? You know, I know that you mentioned it has evolved into a lot of companies entering the fintech space, right? But what else has changed from your point of view? We're always focused on what we called commerce infrastructure. And what that means is, like, how do you provide B2B technology to improve the way we buy and sell goods and services? And the view is, you know, there's going to be massive amounts of change over the next 40 years. And this was our view in like 2012, 13, 14, when we got going. Sure enough, with COVID, that's compressing. And so some of the things that we thought would take five or 10 years are happening in one or two years. And a lot of it is really more around mindset change versus technology change. The technology doesn't change that fast, but mindsets have changed quite a lot. Despite that, what's been really interesting about fintech since we've started Activent is you see real opportunity on B2B payments, B2B fintech that didn't exist a long time ago. If you look, most of the larger companies were B2C or at a consumer component. If it was a business component, it was primarily around interchange or credit card acquirers. There are some of the bigger services businesses like FIS and others that obviously had a big B2B component, but they're servicing sort of legacy businesses. And we've seen this explosion of companies designed to service and manage payments for other businesses. So it can change the way they even operate, you know, their business model and the way they charge. They can charge through payments rather than subscription or you know, they can actually own and end the transaction to the benefit of both parties. So for instance, if you're transacting and you're buying, like one of our portfolio companies buys and sells agriculture goods across the world, if you can transact on their entire platform, it just builds trust for both parties and makes it a lot more efficient. So think about it, you know, as a consumer, you there were things like HomeAway and VRBO a long time ago, and then Airbnb came and they transact for you and there's like a higher level of trust generally, not always, but generally. And so that same thing's happening in business. And, you know, FinTech, it's definitely heated up. 
I'm not at the point yet where my antenna is up in terms of the level of competition, the level of interest where it's overheated, but it's definitely heated up. But, you know, I think changed the opportunity set is unfortunately the pandemic. And so you have these mindset shifts around managing payments and the way you manage moving money from a business perspective that has changed much more rapidly than it would have without the pandemic. So, you know, hopefully it's over in the next year. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but the changes are here to stay and the opportunity set is massive. And so we're, you know, we've done, let's see, we've got, we've made four large investments and a few small ones in fund three. We're about to make another one. And of them, one, two of the large ones, three, of the five are really core fintechs. One is mostly fintech and uh, one is a uh, supply chain business, but has a very important payment layer payment stack. So what do you call it? Do you call it fintech or do you call it supply chain business? They're really both. And so the definitionally you're going to see things change as well, which is going to be really interesting. Right. Yeah. We definitely want to hear about some of your portfolio companies, but before we go there, I think, Steve, you have a very interesting point of view, and that is you've been running a fund pre-COVID. You've done fundraising pre-COVID, but also now you're in the midst of it. And curious to know, how has the conversation with the LP base changed? Oh, okay. With L- yes, with LPs. Well, look, so the conversation itself hasn't changed. We're stewards of capital. Our job is to manage and protect their capital and drive returns for them. Our LP base consists largely of endowments and foundations. We've got one of the largest hospital systems in the U.S., one of the largest children's hospital, two large cancer foundations, a couple of very large public universities. It's a lot of pressure performed for groups that are doing so much good around the world. And, you know, the conversation is always around, you know, the risk reward and how that's changed in the COVID environment, we really don't know, broadly speaking. For us specifically, though, because we invest in this commerce infrastructure sector, which includes for us fintech and payments, our part of the market has just ripped. It has changed more in the last six months, and I've seen a change in my entire career, and I've been in this space, in this commerce space, since the late 90s. And so what we're finding with the LP base is there's a lot more excitement around what we're doing the proof is in the pudding, like the numbers are very good now, which is also exciting. So then the question becomes, you know, how do they think about deploying in private markets to groups like Actum and others? And I think private markets will continue to be a very important part of their portfolio uh, as long as we all perform as an industry. And the interesting thing is I think in times like this and the difficult times, that's when you see like from our perspective, the businesses that are performing versus not performing, Some of it is just the hand they got dealt. It was a bad hand, but it's becoming very clear who the good businesses are. And I think the LPs are going to have sort of the same, you know, visual separation of what's working and what isn't. But I think, you know, we're in more constant touch with the LPs in terms of calling them. So we're releasing our quarterly numbers again and personally call probably each of them. We just did that last quarter and quarter doesn't seem like a long time, but three months Three months is pretty quick in LP cycle because they're playing a very long game. You know, we are fun cycles are very long. And so it's a pretty quick cadence for us. But it, and this time, I think it's important so they know what we're doing. And, you know, we've always been open with our LPs, but I feel like others are being more open as well now, just because 
look, we all depend on each other. They see a lot of things that other GPs are doing in this time. And just like we can advise our companies because we have a larger portfolio, they can advise us in the same way. And that's actually been very helpful through this time. So, yeah, I mean, look, we're built for times like these. We're built for the bad times, you know, and to drive returns in the bad times. Because if you only drive return in the good times, then you're not much use to anyone. Yeah, definitely three months during COVID feel like much longer than three months. Yeah, we, I think we all live in a time warp right now. Very interesting times. Yeah. So, Steve, tell us a little bit about your portfolio. And maybe we, we can start by hearing about your investing and sourcing approach. Sure. So, we have what I would call a very deliberate sourcing approach. We actually break sectors down into four classifications. And it goes from broad to narrow. And what we'll do is we'll take a space, for instance, within, let's say, you know, there's fintech and then you have B2B payments. And within B2B payments, we'll break that down even further. So for instance, like cross-border, remittance, you know, maybe AR, EP management and payment. And within each of those subsectors, what we'll do is map every single company in that space, rank order them, and then reach out to them and try to determine who's the best one. When we find the best one, what we try to do, and best meaning through a product lens. So who's approaching the market the right way, and then couple that with the right founder and team. And when you find that, we try to find it early. So we take signal from seed deals or A rounds, track them for as long as we can. And then as a business influx or when the second derivative on growth is positive, that's when we try to invest. And we don't get the timing right. Oftentimes we invest a little before that because you have to, but the key is to identify who we think the winners are in each of those segments. We have a lot of tools that help us do that. Our LPs know a lot about it, but we don't go into that in detail publicly. But that allows us to leverage a, a much smaller investment team to get access to many more companies. So we rarely move opportunistically we will if we find something in a subsector that we've been following for three years and we know all the players. But generally, we're tracking things for quite some time. You know, sourcing's changed a lot. When I was in growth 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you just had a lot of people cold calling. We we're just trying to get in front of companies. It was hard to find them. Today, it's very easy. They're all out on the web. Even if they just file documents in Delaware to form a corporation, that exists publicly. And so identifying is actually quite easy. The hard part is knowing what sectors you want to bet on and then understanding which of the 20 to 50 companies in that sector you should be reaching out to. And so the more you can kind of carve that up, the more efficient you can become. And so, you know, like all that adds up to, we do like three to five investments a year. We are not a high pay shop. Sometimes we'll do like, We've had one year where we did, I believe, one or two deals because it's, you know, it's a lot of work to get to the best, the best assets. I guess this transparency that every single company is out in the web also has created a, a more competitive landscape for investors. It has. And not only can every investor identify these companies as well if they have the right tools, but also, Miguel, you've got venture firms that have raised big funds, so they're doing growth. Big buyout firms now have sub funds or growth strategies. So they're coming down into our market. Then we've got sovereign wealth funds coming in. We've got family offices coming in. And then COVID hits. 
And you've got whole sectors of the economy not doing well, travel, hospitality, retail, and the things that are performing are tech and tech, tech enabled businesses. And so all of a sudden we've got all these, you know, what I would call tourists in our market and it's made it quite difficult. But again, like we stick to the deliberate approach and getting to know a sector really well, you know, and FinTech itself is multi-trillion dollar segment. You can carve it up many different ways. But when you dig down into those deep subsectors, you can know them really well, understand the customer set, be able to add value in ways that others can't. And the only way to do that is just really be willing to spend the time and be willing to do three, four or five deals a year, not 20. So that's how we've been competing. You know, allows us to punch above our weight from a brand perspective. We're still a newer firm. Recognize that, recognize we're building our brand. And the best way to build your brand is one great deal at a time. There's really no substitute in our business for brand building. And a lot goes into that too. A lot of it's about team and culture. Because at the end of the day, these businesses, we have capital that we steward. We're a collection of people. And I like to use Jim Collins' term, like you want to get the right people on the bus. And then we've got process and culture. And that's it. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into that. You know, when the when all aspects are working well, competing becomes much easier than it would appear outwardly. And I know that not all of your companies are pure play fintechs, but what percentage of your portfolio would you say is fintech related? And could you give us some examples? So, I mean, fintech related, two thirds easily, if not more, pure fintech, almost half. And, you know, some of the more pure plays like better.com, which is essentially building the Amazon of finance, their mortgage provider, incredible business. Vishal is an incredible founder and CEO, absolutely brilliant. Bolt, which is supercharged checkout. They've also got a couple other very interesting strategies that are more consumer related. Ryan Bressel is a CEO, just phenomenal. Finex, which is providing payments infrastructure, really interesting business. Truework, which is doing sort of verification. So allowing you to transact, but it's for you know things like mortgage where you need verification of income and identity, income, employment. Ryan Sandler, great founding team there. And then we've got a number that like Tridge and others that have payment stack or outsourced payment stacks as part of their business model. And we're looking right now at another very interesting B2B payments company that we've been tracking for some time um, that hopefully hopefully works out in the next quarter or so. But yeah, we've, we've looked at every aspect of, I would say more on the B2B side, not on the B2C side. And we're not afraid to invest globally too. So we will look outside the U.S. for the right asset. Now, Steve, growth capital means you're coming in with a big check, right? You're coming in with a meaningful investment that probably is going to ask for a couple of board seats, right? Can you talk to us about some of the value that you aim to provide to your portfolio companies? Sure. We're almost always getting a board seat. Sometimes we have two, like in the case of better. And it's really, you know, just being present at the board is, is enough. But I believe in our part of the market. So we're kind of between that venture and then the really late stage group. So we're writing, call it, we'll go as small as maybe 10 to 15 and we'll go up to 75. But our sweet spot starting point is usually around like 25 to 35. And then we'll build the position 
and keep investing in the business over time. In that part of the market, what's happened, and we're coming in after venture guys have come in, and generally that's because we're venture investors, because we have a product lens. We want really good products, and products are expensive to build, so they require some capital. The venture model has changed. In the old days, venture partners used to have maybe six to eight, nine boards. Now they've got 15, 20 boards. And it doesn't mean they're right or wrong. It doesn't make them smart or stupid. It's just that's the model. And some have executed that model extremely successfully. What that means for us is when we're coming in on the board, the level of governance and instrumentation is very different than what it used to be you know, 20 years ago if venture groups had invested. For us, that's an opportunity. So we built out an operating team. We're about to make another hire, very senior hire on that team. And so first of all, that team is involved very early in the process. So we work as one team, not two teams. We get an onboarding plan together. We help with instrumentation governance. We get governing documents together, not from a legal perspective, but like the board deck and then how that flows through the organization. And then areas where we tend to spend a lot of time Product marketing, lots of times around go-to-market. Recruiting is always a big one as well. And, you know, it, it depends on that business. Some businesses want more support. Some want or need less. And because we're taking minority positions, so usually we own 10 to 30% of a business, you know, we can't force anything, right? Like we're betting on the founding team and the founder. What we can do is just just be there when they need support. And even when things are going well, you know, constantly push to see what we can make better. I always get most nervous when things are going really well. I think that's when you need to be the most vigilant. And so we're fully involved in the slower deal pace allows us to spend more time with our, with our partner companies than we would have otherwise. And for that, I know you were mentioning before we start recording that you have team members with an active and with different experiences, right? Not everyone is coming from the investment world or not everyone is a former entrepreneur. Uh, So you have a a mixed team, I understand? We do. So, you know, growth is interesting in that we need that meld of venture skill set and private equity skill set. I think almost all of our team members, even the junior ones with one exception, have had an entrepreneurial experience, whether they worked at a startup or actually founded a startup. And so, you know, like, the, the ultimate triple play for us is some venture experience, some startup experience, and some later stage investing experience. It's hard to find. You don't always get all three. The experience is important, but then you know comes values and team orientation. And are they a good ambassador for active in? We've got like seven core values that we look for. When we look for people, you know, an entire guide of how we interview, how we score. But what that means is when we're doing that outwardly as we meet with people, it's what we care about internally. And so when we built that, we worked on that together as a team and everyone had buy-in and everyone agreed to it. So I think, look, experience is always really important, but you also need people that just are entrepreneurial and can execute. And that allows you to have a flatter organization when you see bureaucracy and rules. That basically means you don't trust the people that you've got on your team, right? You need process. But the more you allow them leeway to do what they need to do to be successful and to allow the team to be successful, the better team members you have. And so we give everyone a lot of flexibility to execute. And it, the, results are, the results are great. They're phenomenal when you, when you get the right people on the bus. Steve, let's go back a little bit to your 
portfolio. So your companies are certainly closer to IPO than early stage venture back company. And at the same time, founding to IPO timelines keep uh, getting extended and keep getting extended. What's your opinion or what's your take on the popularity of SPACs? Do you think this is a viable path to going public? Yeah, I'm laughing, Miguel, because we were supposed to have a SPAC or call today, literally today, because we were going to launch a SPAC and we put it on hold. And the reason we put it on hold, we have a couple companies getting called by SPACs every week. So the number of SPACs has increased, but also I think even though you can do something doesn't mean you should. And even though we can't raise this back, we had bankers lined up, we had the whole thing ready to go. I think the best thing we can do for our LPs, for our team and for our founders, our partners in our portfolio is to go out and find other phenomenal businesses. And the neat thing, Miguel, is once you get a portfolio of a certain size, like, like ours, you start seeing opportunities for them to work as an ecosystem and work together. And I think that just us focused on getting in the best companies will have way more impact than a SPAC. Now, SPACs have been here for a long time. They never went anywhere. They were always around. The structure and rules of them have changed such that they're a lot, they're cleaner vehicles to not only raise, but also if you're a business to go public than they were a long time ago. The question is, if you can go public the regular way, why wouldn't you? Because you have to give up some economics to the SPAC owner. Now, the reason you might want to do that is if you have a more complicated story that requires not like an S1 perspective, but really like all the material you would get as a private investor, because you can do that as a SPAC because people invest alongside in a pipe. And so they can get, you know, more private like materials, they get locked up, of course, and then, you know, they can make a decision based on just more information. And so there are a lot of businesses that are phenomenal businesses, but they just take more work to get to understand. I think SPACs are viable options for them. If you can go public the regular way, like our portfolio, I wouldn't go through a SPAC. So there's been a lot of demand for SPACs, but at the same time, there's a lot of demand for IPOs. If you've seen how IPOs have performed recently, they've ripped for the most part, particularly like you know tech-related IPOs. And what I think's happened is there's just, given the pandemic, there's so much demand for public market demand for tech and this digitally transforming businesses. And at the same time, you don't have other businesses performing, like all those industries that aren't doing well right now, Miguel. So the, again, going back to travel, hospitality, et cetera, that capital is moving into our sector and it's buying up these IPOs evaluations I haven't seen since 1999. So I don't know how long this will last, but these multiples are the same multiples I saw in 1999, which were 20, 50, 100 times revenue. So it'll be interesting to see how long that lasts. The SPAC thing, they will be around. There will always be a reason to do SPACs, both for the people that own the SPACs and those that merge with the SPAC. Right now, it's not for us, but things change. And sounds like this tourist capital that you speak about is also fueling some of that demand for SPACs. Not only the demand for SPACs, but demand for fintech, great fintech private businesses. And I don't see that necessarily going away. There's a lot of liquidity in the market. People are reaching for return. They see the return opportunity. And the interesting thing about fintech and the hard part these really good businesses, they do trade at high multiples. I mean, you saw Plaid trade at, I forget the number, but it was, I think it was north of 50 times revenue or higher. 
That's a rumor that I heard, but it's hard to underwrite that. But if you have a lot of capital and willing to take a venture like portfolio bet, you know, you're seeing people do it. And so that just it requires growth investors just to be far more deliberate about where they're placing, where they're placing bets. And you're seeing what also is happening is people are coming earlier. So if a late stage and multiples have gone up, they're coming in at like the seed or A, people that traditionally didn't do that are starting to do that, which is going to create a bigger supply of companies at some point, which then will even out demand. But I think we're still in the early innings there. Steve, are there any specific verticals within fintech that you and then the active team are paying attention to? There's a number of them. I mean, a big one right now is for us as B2B payments, because we're seeing it across our portfolio. The existing companies today, for the most part, can't manage complex transactions between businesses. And some of our more marketplace-oriented businesses are those that are doing really heavy B2B workflow management. If there is a right B2B platform that can enable payments bank-to-bank, and I won't get too technical, but that business would be very valuable. There are some that are trying, some rent others' networks, some do more remittance, which isn't game-changing, but we're really looking for one that can do end-to-end and we can put our marketplace platforms on top of it. We've got a couple in our portfolio that touch on this and do different aspects of this, and we're looking at a couple right now that do this as well. And so that's, for us, is super interesting. I mean, we've been looking at a lot of things that go after the interchange fee or bypass interchange. And I know a lot of people are doing that. That's more on the B2C side. We're starting to see some interesting businesses percolate. You know, I think we're trying to figure out the move to wallet and how behavior changes over time, particularly with COVID, it's starting to happen faster. So yeah, I mean, we're, we've probably got right now, maybe 24, 25 subsectors mapped. And, you know, the interesting thing is there may not be necessarily a company for all of these. It may be a product or product feature for some of our existing portfolio companies as well. So there's a dual benefit. And if you take a company like Better, their business is so broad, they can offer so many products that a lot of these categories that Better should just build out themselves. And in this mark environment, we're talking about IPOs getting done. Look at like Amazon and Netflix. I mean, they built, they brought the future forward on the back of cheap capital, right? So even if they couldn't do what they wanted to do t- in 2000 or 2005, they could raise cheap capital because they were public and bring that future forward, acquire that future, right? And I think if this market persists, we're going to see those that have access to capital really outpace those that don't. And, and that is a risk, particularly in fintech, is that if you don't raise your war chest, you could get lost in the crowd because look, every product can be replicated. It's just a question of how much pain alpha are you willing to take, right? Like how much work is it to build it and how quickly can you do it? And then do you have the right culture that can sustain that? So it's going to be really interesting to see how the back half of this year plays out. But I do think that as capital, particularly in the public markets, becomes cheaper, we're probably going to see more acquisitions. We're going to see much more forward-thinking product, even though if they're not there yet, they're going to do what they need to do to, to spend to build it or to buy it. And we're going to see B2B fintech change a lot. Fascinating. Fascinating, Steve. Well, before we go, Steve, this has been great, but we would also love to hear 
about some of your hobbies and how you spend some of that time outside of work. What's a hobby, Miguel? <laughs> I so, forget like, myself. I've got my family and Activent. It's my fourth child. I really love this business. I love every aspect of it. I mean, there's very few businesses where you get to talk to some of the smartest people in the world, most interesting entrepreneurs and founders. But, you know, I, outside of spending time with the family, I started playing more golf because I can't travel, Miguel. Not very good. A little bit more tennis and just trying to stay active. Lots of running and walking. Obviously, all the standard stuff like reading, podcasts, audiobooks. You know, I think like, especially now in the pandemic, I think we all have this added anxiety or stress and getting outside and whether you're running or walking is really important these days. So I'm just trying to spend a little bit more time outside or outdoors. But yeah, family and Activan. Those are my priorities. Your family and then Activan sounds like it's your second family. Yep, that's correct. Great. Well, Steve, once again, thank you for joining us. This has been a treat. We don't get a lot of growth equity investors, so we do value your point of view and particularly coming from a Wharton alum. So we certainly hope to keep in touch. And we also would love to see you on campus once, once we're back to normal. That'd be amazing. I would love to come back, Miguel. Thank you for inviting me. No, thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.